Have you ever experienced something so crippling in your life that has made you feel broken? I have. Are you someone who has a giving heart but is struggling to feel good themselves? Are you consistently putting your needs aside to take care of everyone else? If so, you're not alone. Giving starts with giving to yourself so that you are able to give of yourself to other people. Isn't it time you took back control and discovered what makes you tick? Join me in my journey and find out how you can feel better about yourself, live your best life, and share that with others. Thinking of yourself, it doesn't make you selfish. It makes you brave. I'm Nelia, and this is the Giving Starts With You podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Giving Starts With You podcast. I'm your host, Nelia Hutt. It is a pleasure today to have and reintroduce to you a past guest, JL Keys. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm feeling really, really good. Thanks, Nelly. And it's lovely to be back here. I know when we last recorded together in episode 91, um, we made the decision to do this particular one today. So it's been a long time in the making and now we're here and I'm looking forward to sharing with you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that um, you agreed to come back on the show. Um, so everyone, yes, it's episode 91, Recover with Reality Therapy. Now, J.L. Keyes is a reality therapy certified counselor, a speaker, and a teacher. And in her past episode, if you have not checked it out, please go back and listen to that so you can get some of the backstory as well. Such an important interview. I've had a lot of um, people comment about how helpful and impactful it was. Um, so in episode 91, she shared her struggle with chronic fatigue, migraines, OCD, anxiety, suicidal depression, and depersonalization, and how reality therapy helped her recover. Today, we're going to speak about something that I admittedly don't know a lot about, and I'm here to be educated by JL Keys, um, but I think it's a very um, important topic, and I don't think it's discussed enough. And some of the listeners may be struggling as well. And if you're not struggling, perhaps you know someone who is struggling. So today we are going to be speaking about eating disorders. So JL Keys is a survivor of a nine-year struggle with anorexia nervosa, and she now dedicates her life to empowering those impacted by this disease. So I wanted to give you a very warm welcome today. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this very important topic today with us. Absolutely enjoying the opportunity to do so because I think there's so much misinformation that's been given about eating disorders and particularly why they occur in the first place and that was certainly my experience traveling through um, I mean when I experienced anorexia at the age of 15 through to 24 um, it was a long time ago and there wasn't a lot of information about eating disorders and I didn't know what it was I just knew when I got that piece of paper with different pictures on it and I looked at it and read the text I thought yes that applies to me mm. but moving forward from there it was a very long and hard road as to get answers as to why that was my life and how the heck I get out of this situation I found myself in hence the development of all those other associated illnesses that you've just outlined so, um, yeah, and it wasn't until I was in my 30s that my answers arrived by connecting with the right person. 
So yeah, unfortunately, it can be a long, arduous road, um, unless you're very fortunate to connect with the right person the first time. So um, we might explore some of that today. Mm. So you said you were 15. Yes, I was 15. Yeah. Can you tell um, us a little bit about how all of that started for you? Well, and I think this is where one of the myths come in, comes in, because I think at the time everyone just thought, oh, jail, you know, you're trying to look good. You're trying to be better than everybody else. You're trying to, um, you know, be perfect and be the perfect looking person. And it wasn't about that at all. But that's certainly how it was interpreted. But just very briefly, um, because I think in the other episode 91, there's a lot of my background there. If people want to go back, we won't, you know, revisit that on this particular pod um, YouTube but um, yeah I was born into a family that were farmers initially and when I was six my father decided to go into the what was the Methodist ministry here in Australia and now it's known as the Uniting Church and um, that meant moving to Adelaide our capital city where I now reside as well and um, I'm looking all over the place here I'm very conscious of thinking about everything um, that's okay. Just be yourself. So, You're doing great. <laughs> yeah. And so for four years, you know, I went to two different schools because uh, one we went to and then we shifted and went to a closer one. And so that was another interruption in my life. And then, of course, four years after that, we went down to a place called Port MacDonald, a beautiful little fishing village here in South Australia. And I lived for three years down there and went to school. And this is when the isolation and the bullying and the separation from not what I now know as normal life really began to show itself to me. And I was um, very different. I was also the minister's daughter. So that didn't help my reputation. It's a bit like being the policeman's daughter or son, mm -hmm. you know, in a country town, there's a bit of a difference in how you're perceived and how you're seen. And that was certainly happening for me. But I was also beginning to, you know, hear other conversations of the other younger people around me and hearing about how people lived and what they could and couldn't do. And my world was very restricted in what, and very, very controlled, not only from a religious point of view, but a family, what I call family culture point of view as well. But those differences were beginning to confuse me. And then for three years, we shifted up to a world, uh, a, not a world, a wheat built place in the top north of South Australia called Kimber and this is when I was 13, 14 and 15 and I was the top athlete, I was a straight A student, I was um, you know the perfect person, I was tall and you know slimish and blonde and all of those things and I had no friends, I spent a lot of time at lunch and recess time in the toilets just hiding because I had no one to to communicate with and sports day was great because I used to go out and, and train mm. and it was during that time that I, I think with getting older you start to sit back and you begin to assess and the eyes that I had, the way I was looking at the world, the way I had been taught, the values, the beliefs and everything came into play and somewhere, and it wasn't a conscious thing, it was just somewhere in me, it was, well, they've got friends because, mm. and I was focusing on um, how they behaved, how they spoke, what they did, what they looked like. I began to sort of dissect people visually and think, well, if I can just achieve that. So if I wear my skirts shorter, 
if I wear my hair differently, if I do this, if I do that, then perhaps acceptance will come through my dear. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. It was all about something being wrong with me. And, um, and then somewhere along the line in that last year at Kimber, I must have decided that um, weight was something else. And so I decided to change my diet. I was learning about nutrition through home economics and I began to employ those ideas into my private life, but to the extreme. And so then I lost a lot of weight and um, somehow that became the obsession side of it. But looking back now, it was never about, um, you know, gaining acceptance through what I look like. It was what can I control so that I can be accepted because I'm in this controlled family life. How can I get some control back and some semblance of self back? And that was just the way that I went. Now, some people might decide, you know, some people get that stressed about it. They might end up in a mental illness that's characterized by gambling or characterized by alcoholism or another way of dealing with it. Um, for me, I went into this thing called an eating disorder and um, but acceptance didn't happen. I was still bullied. I was still isolated. I didn't right. achieve the things. But uh, for the next nine years, I did that to myself, hoping, hoping, hoping that what I wanted to achieve would happen. And you get to a point where I'm not letting go of this because I know tomorrow, I know tomorrow if I just keep going, I just keep going, um, it will happen for me. But um so, well, I guess it did in sort of a way because I went to teachers college then, you know, you, you, I did end up with a boyfriend and I did end up getting married. And But behind the scenes of that facade was a very lonely, very unhappy uh, developing young woman who had this secret of suffering. Mm. And um, yeah, so it's, you know, thank you for saying that it has nothing to look to, to, to do with your looks because I think there's a myth out there that portrays eating disorders as a very vain disease. And that is so untrue. And like any disease, it comes from us wanting to control our own selves, whether it's alcohol or, you know, any of the things that you mentioned, gambling or even sex addiction, anything. And it's so important that people realize that. Because, you know, being a teenager, like my son right now, he's 15. And, you know, it reminds me of, of what it was like at that age. And you don't know enough to break things down and analyze things. You just know you feel like crap. You know that you're being ignored, that you don't belong anywhere, that you're lonely. And you, it's so hard because I remember as well thinking, I don't belong here. Like, I might have friends, but they're not really my friends. And they talk behind your back. Then I'm trying to hide who I am. And then there's so many things. And it makes us feel like everybody's watching us. But in reality, looking back, nobody was really care cared about what we were doing. <laughs> like, you know, we make this so much bigger. And no matter what it is, it's somebody that's crying out for help. So I really appreciate you explaining that because I want people to know that it is another disease. It's not something that's related with you want to look better. You want to, you know, as a 15 year old girl, of course, that's what you thought it was about. Why wouldn't you, you know, you're 15, you know, you're trying everything that you can, like, this is not your fault. Just like, 
you know, with so many other things. So thank you so much for explaining that and for saying that it wasn't until, you know, you were in your 30s that you started to understand. Yeah, that's right. I just want to go back to that, you know, it's not about your looks. It's not. The issues and what's inside is what's driving the behaviours that you end up in. So it's very easy for people to say, well, you're just obsessed about your looks because that's the behaviour that we do. We stand in front of the mirror. We exercise excessively. I used to spend hours in front of the mirror, you know, tweaking this and tweaking that and then looking at magazines. And the magazine pictures were the ideals. I thought, well, and that for me was um, something to aspire to. You know, if I could just be like that, and mm. um, I'll be accepted as well. But it was all, it's a mixture. It's, that's not the only element. That's one of the behaviours that we do. And mm. therefore, it's very easy for an outsider to say, well, you're just obsessed about your looks. Because that's what they see you doing. Mm. But what you're really doing is matching yourself or criticising yourself as against something that you think is being accepted and then trying to emulate that and trying to do that. So that's where the confusion comes in. You know, so in a lot of therapy, well, you know, why do you want to look good? Why do you want to do this? Why are you doing diet culture? Why are you doing all of these things? Um, well, you end up going down those pathways because that's how you think you can achieve this. But they're a manifestation of an expansion of an illness that began small and the longer you're in it grows bigger and bigger and bigger as you try to gain that control you add another layer to what you're actually doing so it is very easy for an outsider to um, assess it in that way and I think that was done for me for many many years and that's why I didn't and that's how it was viewed back then and that's why I didn't find the right help until I was 37. Mm. Yeah. I found, pardon me, over time was I became a chameleon almost. And um, so I would find myself going into a social setting and very quickly judge um, the behaviours and what they were doing and how they were speaking and what they were talking about and how they were behaving with each other, you know, at a social engagement or something. And I would become that person that I felt they wanted to see in that setting. So I would change myself accordingly. And then I might go into a different setting. I might go out. I was a netball player uh, when I could still do it. And um, before I got too weak and I would go in and I would be a different person again because that's a different type of social setting. And we speak a little bit differently to each other as we're trying to work out and navigate this game together and everything. So I become that person. I would then go and visit my family, you know, particularly my mother and father. And very quickly, boom. I would turn into that very quiet, very withdrawn, don't say much, you know, play the game, be perfect, do what you have to do. And again, so, you know, in any one day, I might be three different people in three different social settings. Just so then, right, not to stand out. Yeah, well, not to stand, but more so if I behave like this, I'll be accepted in this group. If I behave like this and with my parents, I know I have to behave like this because otherwise, you know, I'm going to be yelled at or whatever's going to happen to me. So I, for me, that's how I played it out. And so, of course, along the way, you completely lose who you are. You just go, well, but you don't know you're doing that. But you do when you go into recovery, you go, well, heck, who am I? 
mm. I've been all these different people to please all these different people. It hasn't worked, but along the way, I've just chopped pieces off of myself until I just don't exist anymore. And I've just got no real personality or anything. So what's going on here? You know? I'm so sorry that you, you, you went through all of that, but I was thinking, you know, when you were saying those things, I was thinking like, when do you get to be yourself? How do you even know who that is? And then you were, you just said it right there. Yeah. Well, you, you don't. And the longer you're in an eating disorder or any mental illness, the more you lose yourself and you have no idea. And then so a huge part of your recovery is coming back to who you are. And with eating disorders, and for me in that arena, it was giving myself permission to be who I was as well. And that was a hard one to say, am I allowed to? And that came back to one of the reasons why I developed an eating disorder in the first place. And that was really, really hard. Am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to drink alcohol or am I going to be, you know, hit with a big stick or something? You know, I had a lot of fear ideology um, embedded into my learning about how life works. And um, that was what I had to debunk. That's what I had to work with and work against and get rid of all the fears that were just building up in me from the time I was born. And at 15, that's how it manifested for me. And as a result of isolation and bullying, and I can look back and see how the person I was becoming actually drove people away from me as well. Right. So, you know, what it ended up being a two-way thing, but you don't know that's what you're doing. And, um, but it was 15 years of, being in a very controlled setting in my private life and then trying to fit into the real world and then not knowing how to do it and then experiencing all the, and bang, you know, something had to happen um, mm. to fall me apart, I suppose. So you begin to say, hey, hang on, this is not worth being here. That You know, it's got to be better than this. I just can't keep doing this. And um as I referred to before, when that happened for me at 15, there was no understanding, no knowledge, no knowing, nothing. So that's why it took so long for me to gain understanding of my why, if you like, of why that happened at 15. I will just say, bring in now that I was anorexic then for the nine years at the age of 24. Um, I was then married and I shifted into Victoria. I'm in South Australia. So I went over to Victoria and I lived on 10 acres over there. And um, I was a teacher and one of my colleagues was pregnant and she said, look, I'm going to go for an appointment with my doctor. Would you please come with me? And I thought, why? Well, <laughs> you're a big girl. You don't need me to hold your hand. But there was ulterior motive. And so I went along with Inga and um, she had set up an appointment for me and she actually came in with me oh, wow. and um, sat there and they said, and she expressed through the doctor I obviously had talked about it beforehand. She had observed my eating and observed my behaviours and had seen the difference. And um, that caring side of her came out enough to put it on the table. Thanks, so then, right? Yeah. And oh. then I went to the psychiatrist that this, this doctor had referred to me. And um, that's where I first heard the word anorexia nervosa. Mm. So that wasn't until I was 24. And um, so as was the way of recovery back then. Um, I was weighed every week when I went in and the idea was if I put the weight back on, everything else would disappear, everything else will go and I'll be normal again and I'll be healthy and happy and we can just get on with my life. 
it was very difficult to break that and begin to eat again. And it was a long, hard slog of allowing myself to eat more. And, and there was a lot of things that I did to give myself the courage, you know, to take those steps. And it was still in a very controlled manner. But eventually I did get back to oh, 58 kilos was the highest I ever got. And that's just under nine stone, I think. Um, so I did get rid of the eating disorder side of it. Um, but in its place came yeah. the OCD, the depersonalization, all of those other mental illness manifestations, because what was, what didn't happen for me was we didn't explore my story and look at the reasons why an eating disorder was my life from the age of 15 to 24. And that was the huge gap. Yes. That that's I why it's so important for people to know they can't get better on their own. You know, it's with most addictions, you just can't. I know we like to believe that we can, but we need the experts. We, we need the coaches. We need the therapists, the counselors. We need friends too, you know, a, a listening ear. We need all of those people behind us. I love when you said that your coworker, you know, she was the one who sometimes it takes somebody, un, like I'm getting goosebumps because I hear this so much that it takes this one person, you know, and sometimes it's the least expected person, you know, and they come in and, and they, they notice that because it's so important for the listeners to realize that even though you may not be going through this, be the person that's observant. You know, if you see someone struggling with alcohol or eating disorders or gambling, you know, don't be judgmental, just observe people around you and, maybe you're the only person that could stand up for them, you know, be that person like, like JL had for her, you know, for that moment, we can't do it by ourselves. There's no way. No, there isn't because what we don't understand is that it's not about the behavior that we're doing. It's about the thinking that brought us there in the first place mm -hmm. and how we relate to the world and how we see the world and filter it. And, and it's embedded in our story. And if we don't go back and have a look at our story and have a look at the main events and the main ideas and concepts that we've been taught, um, I mean, mine was all laced with fear. And mm. so how can you live a normal life when you're looking over your shoulder all the time? And um, so that needed to be examined very closely and explored. And then for me to be able to make the connection between um, that, that and the developing eating disorder and then all the other things later on in my 20s and early 30s so you can't do it on your own because you don't know that's what you actually have to do and so you need somebody and the best person to help you is someone who's already had the lived experience so that was also the person brought in at the age of 37 had had her own lived experience mm. and uh, because they truly understand and judging it's very easy to judge oh for goodness sake just get over it just stick that cake in your mouth and eat it you know yeah. and um and that can be very damaging you know it takes a very special person to realize and understand that there's something going on that's not very pleasant for this person and this is how it's being played out in their life this is how they're doing it at the moment but it's not about alcohol it's not about eating disorder you know, it's about something in their lives that needs to be resolved for them. 
and then they don't need the eating disorder anymore. They don't need the alcohol or all of those other manifestations. They can begin to leave those behind as they replace it with something a lot better, mm. you know, in their life. And that takes a lot of hard work and a lot of guidance from the right, right person to look for the cues, to look for the gaps in the story or the, the extra information in a story that exists that, um, you know, the normal person wouldn't hear. The normal person would hear the storyline somebody who's lived it would hear the storyline and the bits in between that you've right. got to pull out and say but hang on what about this bit it's all the quiet this? moments Let's explore that yes yeah and that's what, what people, was here for me that's yeah and maybe what people shows. aren't saying that's right yeah always looking for for the deeper meaning mm. you know and that's the, why the, i'm so amazed by your story because I love that you've used your pain and now you are helping other people in the same situation, you know, and I love this so much because it just shows that anybody can overcome when you have the right guidance. And I think it's so amazing and so beautiful that you are that person for somebody else. I really think, you know, we're all born into this world with something that we're meant to do you know, and sometimes through pain comes beauty, right? And I cannot imagine what those years were like for you. And I'm sorry that no one noticed before your friend did. Um, but now you can help so many people and you are helping so many people and you seem so uh, passionate about getting through and so easy to talk to. And, you know, I think it's great. I think you're really, you're in the right line of business because I think you're going to be phenomenal. Right um, line of work. <laughs> yes. Um, if you don't mind, can we just go back to, I'm just, what would be like a typical day? Like for someone who is suffering from an eating disorder, what does that typical day look like for, for them? Well, I think it's hard to actually say an overall typical day because everyone has their own experience. And because, you know, I was labelled anorexia nervosa, then you have bulimics. And then right. over the there's all these other labels that have been added that have a slightly different behaviour that's going on for that person. So you get that label and you're doing this is just slightly different to the next one. So you get, so there's all these okay. labels, which I think, you know, and this is just my personal opinion, from the experience that I've had and what I bring to the table. So my comments come from that. Mm -hmm. And um, I wish there weren't all these labels. I wish there was just one label, eating disorder. So, you know, everyone does it differently. I'll speak about my experience with it. Um, gradually, I got to a point where all I would have for breakfast, we have a product here in Australia called Vita Wheats and they're like little crisp breads. Mm. <laughs> and I used to melt cheese on that under the grill. And that was breakfast, just two of those in the morning. And then at lunchtime, I would have two more of those with a slice of cheese on the top and then an apple or a banana or an orange or something like that. That's all I would have. And then at the end of the day, I would have a very controlled amount of meat and vegetables and then a dessert of some sort and that was every day it was basically the same foods every day mm. and um and i was speaking with a client recently and she reminded me of this so i thought yes i remember doing that you know it was also time wise you know you had to have it at a particular time mm. because and as i explored this with her i went 
yes, that's the reason why we did that or why I did that and why you're doing that. Um, you don't want to eat sooner mm. because that means, you know, you're going to feel that hunger and you don't have to wait until six o'clock, you know, to have your food. For example, when I started, you know, I was older and I was starting to go out and we might go out to dinner as a group. I knew I had to wait that day instead of having dinner at six o'clock, I have to wait until seven o'clock. And it was just like, oh, everything was, was so really thought out. Yeah. And first days because I knew that from six o'clock until I got that food in my mouth, I was going to experience really bad hunger and go through that awful stage. So for me, it was just having the same foods, the same quantities every day. Uh, if meals were later, having that agonizing wait until that meal came along. And then invariably once a week or once a fortnight, because my body was so hungry, <laughs> <laughs> if I went out to a buffet meal, buffets were, you know, smorgasbords were just a nightmare for me um, because I would allow myself to have that extra bit of food. And as soon as you did that and you signaled to your body and somewhere your body goes, hey, there's more food available. I don't have to be hungry anymore. Oh, let's have some more. <laughs> that hunger would take over. And then that uncontrolled behavior of just stuffing as much as I could in my mouth. And um, I would eat huge body needs it right in a short amount of time and my body was loving it because it's saying yay i'm at last i'm getting some food into me that i can you know help you function by um but then the next day i would wake up and just feel bloated and awful and horrible and i would have 24 hours of this awful bloated feeling and vow and declare i would never ever do this again and put myself through this awful feeling and then, you know, 48 hours later, I was sort of back to what was my normal at the time. So, and then that was the cycle, you know, always starving myself, starving myself. And as soon as I ate that extra thing or I'm, you know, going out to dinner, if I went out to dinner and I'd allow myself, you know, entree main course dessert, I mean, I looked forward to it. I couldn't wait then to you would get there. And, yourself and after. But then, mm. yeah, then I'd come home and I'd be in the freezer, I'd be in the fridge, I'd be in the cupboard, and that would be the trigger. So that was what I was doing to myself. I know, you know, bulimics will go out and do um, the same sort of thing, but then, and I could never work out how you did this. So, um, you know, they will go and put their fingers down their throat and throw it all up, thinking that, well, I've enjoyed all of that food, but now I've got to get it out of me because it will put weight on me, you know. But what they don't understand is that during that time you're, you're stuffing it all in, there is absorption going on. Those kilojoules are being absorbed and there is a lot more being absorbed in your body than you think. So you can throw it up, but you're really not, you know, getting rid of all of that food and all those kilojoules you thought you you're putting into your body and you're doing all that damage of damaging your teeth and damaging your throat and damaging your whole working system, you know, in that way. So, um, yeah, that, that's what I was doing for me from day to day. Yeah. And no one around you, your, your family didn't notice there was anything off or, um, my mother I, because I lost the weight, it wasn't about the eating because you, mm. you're very clever and you do hide it. And um, yeah, I mean, I went to boarding school for a couple of years and my food was dished out for me and I would control it. I would go, oh, no, 
oh, can I just, uh, uh, you know, and I would control how much I was having. And if they put too much, I just didn't eat it. Well, I could get away with that. I was in a boarding school. No one was watching what I was doing at the table. So it was very easy to get away with eating less. Mm -hmm. um, at home, no, nothing was ever said ever but my mother did take me to the doctors because you know eating disorders we lose our period as we're getting older and um so she went to inquire about that and once again lack of knowledge lack of understanding they would ask me what are you eating and of course I would fabricate a little bit about what I was doing and they'd say well it sounds like you've got a pretty good diet you know what's the problem and so we would go home and my mother would take that as gospel and go oh well I'm worrying about nothing Mm -hmm. So it just wasn't the awareness and the understanding or the knowledge to be able to pick up on the little things that I was doing, like, you know, all the exercise I was doing all the time, mm. you know, no one, uh, I know I've been an, a top athlete. So I guess everyone thought, well, you know, that's just her athleticism. I don't know, because it was never talked about. Mm. It was just never talked about. Yeah. Thank you for, for saying that, because also, you know, as having a teenage son, and you know, the more I know, um, and the more educated I become, the more things, you know, as parents, we, we, we should be aware of and look out for and, you know, the signs that maybe um, someone is having a difficult time. So I appreciate you saying that. Besides mm -hmm. the misconception of it's all about food. Um, is there anything that you think um, is thought out there that's incorrect? when people think of eating disorders it's so hard but i'm just trying to make sure that we're clear that it's not around food that it's it's so much more and it is a lack of loneliness and suffering and so much more than that yeah well it's not about food and weight it's about control and that's the bottom line it's about somewhere in your life you are not you don't feel in control of your life you don't feel like you're the boss of your life or you have no freedom. Somewhere there's a control or a fear element of that sort. And the way that you are responding to that aspect of your life is to develop an eating disorder. So that's, that's my belief. This is a very huge topic. And over the years, um, as people research it, you know, new ideas come in as to why eating disorders exist in the first place. And some of what I read and some of what I see frustrates me mm. and then others, I go, yeah, I'm on board with you. And I think it comes from your own experience and how, you know, you've navigated your way through it and your belief system about an eating disorder is generated from there. So I need to be very careful and um, to listen to other points of view and other people's experiences and accept that for them, that was how they viewed it. And therefore that helped them to recover. But in answering your question for me, and I make that very clear to listeners today, I'm responding from my experience and my understanding and what I would like to convey as an idea to consider, you know, for recovery. Um, why do eating disorders happen? My belief, my strong belief is what I've already said. Mm -hmm. There's something that's happened in your life that remains a stress in your life an unresolved stress of some sort that and your body is a wonderful machine it holds on to it for you protects you from it and gives you behaviors and ways of dealing and navigating your way through life around it but then eventually it gets too much and for me it was 15 years age 
and I went into an eating disorder. And I think we know enough now, thankfully, that if we, if I knew what I know now back then, my first question to me at 15 would be, why are you doing this? What's happening in your life that an eating disorder has turned up? But of course, most of us at that age, we don't have that self-love, self-awareness. There's no, the experience. That's right. But I think now, I mean, when I work with people, it's, okay, what's happening for you? Tell me your story. Tell me the events in your life that highlight uh, unresolved trauma that's in your life. Tell me about your relationships. Tell me about the uh, beliefs and values that you grew up with. Um, you know, I want to hear your story and how you relate and how you feel to the world. Mm. And in that, embedded in that story will be the reasons why yes. you're doing it sort of at the moment. And so I know at the moment there's a lot of research and suggestion about genes and connection to genes, and mm. it's all in the genes. And um, <clears throat> if your family line has eating disorders in it, then there must be a gene factor. I step back from that one a little bit and I accept that people have that view and they want to work with that view. And if they get success, that's great as a line of thinking. Mm -hmm. However, my way of looking at that is that, okay, in that generate in that line, family line and down the generation, what is the message about life that's been handed down from one generation to the next yeah. that sees eating disorder filtered through the generations? Oh. What are we teaching? our children and what are we passing on that gives them the opportunity to deviate for a while into an eating disorder you know i want to look at the patterns and threads that exist i really in like that yeah because it, once you can understand it then you can stop the cycle you can teach the next generation different right yeah i want to look at yeah the patterns what's the similar pattern what are the threads that are going through your family generations that will kickstart this mm. and you know and then you say well some do it and some don't and that's an individual thing because it depends on you know the differences because everyone in a family can grow up in the same family and you can all have a different outcome absolutely how impactful and how often a certain event happened for one person, but not for another, uh, the friendships that you bring in and, you know, if you're going to kick the system and it depends on who you are in the first place as well mm -hmm. and how you relate and connect. And so for me, I had an added, you know, thing for me to get an eating disorder and that was sexual abuse as a child up to the age of five and on, you know, a couple of different fronts. So I had that trauma in there and you know the blame and the shame and the total responsibility and that was adults feeding me, me that belief so with not having that changed at all that's embedded it's in my brain it's a truth it's a huge fear it's living in there and it's impacting how I view and see the world so everywhere I go and one of the ones was you won't be liked so that's the idea I take into every schoolyard and every social situation. You will not be liked. You will not be liked. So with that filter, it is little wonder that at the age of 15, it all built up and yes. got too much for me. And that was my body's way of saying, JL, stop. 
yeah. I want you to recover and heal from something. But we didn't know that until I was 37. So of course, and I don't think many people do that go through these different things. And I'm so glad that when you talk about recovery, that that's where the recovery process starts is tell me about this, tell me about that. Because it shouldn't really be and tell me if I'm wrong, it shouldn't really be about food until the end of the recovery process. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, when you're in recovery, there are different areas in it. There's the, you know, the thinking side of it, the cognitive side of it. There's also the food and the exercise and all of those behaviors that we adopt when we're experiencing an eating disorder. And it can be like a mind, well, where the heck do we start here? You mm. know, and for anyone, for me, it would have been too overwhelming to say, okay, we're going to look at your thinking, we're going to look at what you're eating, and we're going to look at your, and we're going to try to combat all of them at the one time. And um, so for me, I start with the story because I don't think you can start with food and let's start to increase and do all of this because fear is going to come in. That fear needs to go. You need to give yourself permission to look at your story and begin to live life a different way. And as those fears leave you then, and there's a timing, and I guess you gauge it, you gauge it as a practitioner of looking at the person, but you also gauge it by asking them and inquire, do you think you're ready mm. to now? While we're working with your thinking and your behaviours, are you ready to perhaps look at some of your food habits and your food rituals? Are we ready? Which is the easiest one you think you can sort of work with and get rid of now? So you bring that in and then the exercise. Okay, let's bring that in slowly as well, appropriate at the right time for what your body can do. So it's a step-by-step -step thing. But the very first thing is let's get rid of these whys. Let's get rid of these fears because the rest isn't going to happen until you do that. And so I, I think that, no, no. And I could see that too, because you had mentioned before how even though, the eating disorder had stopped it had been replaced with other things because we hadn't started at the beginning the why right so that's what we want to avoid is it turning into something different and it changing form but still having the same suffering and the same um trouble with something else right so i'm so glad that it starts there as it should right as it should and i as you were saying that i remember many years ago here in Adelaide, we have a hospital called Flinders um, Hospital, and it has an eating disorder unit. And you can go in as an outpatient, and you can also be an inpatient. And I went in there for 10 days. Um, and I knew when I went in, it wasn't because I was going to recover. I mean, the eating disorder had actually gone, it was all these other things. And when I went in, it was that intuitive knowing that this is about learning for me, it's not actually about me recovering. Mm. So I went in, that and I and it was it was a time for me to observe the other clients or the other patients that were there to interact with them engage have conversations with them mm. and by this stage I'd already connected with um, I was in my 30s and I'd already connected with the lady who was helping me with reality therapy so I had a lot of that knowledge as well and I remember sitting at a table a breakfast table and everybody, all the women that were there had their little pots with all their tablets in them. Mm. And I didn't have a pot because I refused to take tablets. And I just, that was a nightmare for them. But anyway, too bad. And, um, you know, they'd be popping all these pills. And one girl in particular was, was just chatting. And she said, 
I said, oh, you know, how long have you been here? And she said, oh, this is my third time that I've come back. And I thought, what the heck are you doing back here for the third time? And she said, when, I, when I'm in here, I'm great. I can eat. I can do everything. I'm normal. But as soon as I go home, it all falls apart. And I thought, there's your answer, people. Why aren't you asking this girl yes. what's happening at home? What's different in that environment? And why aren't you making her an outpatient so she's at home and coming in to see you so she heals in the real world? So she can face her fears and know what they are. Don't cushion her away. Exactly. So we do that with drug addiction and alcohol. You know, they say, well, what is your environment outside of that? You know, yeah. yes, absolutely. Why would it be any different? You know, like, yeah. So that's a real learning for me. And thank goodness I began to have that reality therapy choice theory knowledge and approach in me as well. So when I came away from that, I went, yeah, that's what that was about for me to really reinforce that it doesn't matter how many tablets you put into people. It doesn't, you know, unless you ask that girl in particular, okay, what's happening at home? And for me, I wanted to ask her what relationship at home is the most damaging for you? Mm. You know, have you got a mum or a dad that's watching over you? Are you um, expected to get straight A's? Are you under pressure about this? Were you a top app? You know, who were you before your eating disorder came along? What pressures were you under? All of those questions. And she wouldn't have come back for the third time, you know. Right. And that really reinforced in me the importance of looking at, well, in this case, and I guess the biggest learning for me too is the relationships that we have. Relationships can make and break us. And so for me, the relationships, the family relationships with dominant, a very controlling, dominating father, sexual abuse, of course, at the hands of, um, and I won't name them all here because that's just what I do, but, you know, within and without the family. And then having this strong religious, you can't drink, you can't do alcohol, you can't do this, you know, when I was the captain. A lot of pressure. And when I was the captain in the netball team at Kimber, um, you know, we won the grand final. So, you know, country towns, they all come out to celebrate, you know, the end of the year, and they all give out their trophies and everything. That's a huge winding, you know, and there's lots of alcohol, lots of people and everyone having a lot of fun. And as the captain, I was expected to go and collect the trophy on behalf of my team. And initially I wasn't allowed to do it because there was going to be alcohol there. Mm. And so my father, no, no, no. And in the end, he said, okay, these are the conditions. He drove me there. He wanted to know what time. Oh, about eight o'clock. So he drove me there just before eight. I was allowed to walk in, go up, collect the trophy, come out and walk straight out and get in the car and go home. He waited for me. Yeah, you so missed that, out on that a beautiful opportunity. Yeah, so it was all of that control. And um, so, yeah, that, you know, the relationships that we're in, the events that we have, the traumas that we experience that we haven't resolved, that's what we will find in most of these people that have an addiction of any sort or mental illness, I should say, of any sort. I want to know your story, people. I want to know your belief system. I want to know what's up here and how you relate to the world and how you see it. Mm. Yeah. When you went to visit that hospital and you were surrounded by people with similar, um, not stories, but similar um, how do you say similar behaviors yes yes thank you did you feel similar. yeah did you feel less alone 
because you felt like maybe they understood you a little bit better in that community, in that setting? Um, I think by the time I got to there, I had a fair bit. Of, I wasn't experiencing an eating disorder anymore. Mm -hmm. I was put in there because I was exhausted and I was tired. And um, so I was having rest more than anything. But I think they were hoping that these people in there would be able to really nail it mm -hmm. and get underneath it. But they didn't. So I but the reason yeah. why I asked is I know sometimes um, being around you know, people with similar struggles and, and sometimes can make us feel like we're a part of something, that we belong to something. And sometimes that can be a barrier to getting recovery as well, I think, to getting help because you finally feel like you're in this group of people that accept you, that understand you. Do you find that you ever, you know, you ever have any clients perhaps that find that that's like a hindrance, like something that will block yeah, it's interesting you say that because that's another strong belief that I have. Um, and I know, once again, groups, you know, let's let's create a group and we'll all support each other. That's good that you can feel like you're a part of something. I never did groups. I never did any of those sorts of things. And looking back, I'm really glad. I, was, I came away from that, no, you have to heal in the real world. And that means being in the environment that you're in every day and discovering what it is about that environment that's keeping you in this eating disorder. I think groups are good um, for learning about each other and understanding that, hang on, you are not alone. There are a lot of us that have got similar thinking and similar behaviours and we can share about that. As long as the next step is, okay, what are we going to do about this? so that we don't remain stuck here. And I think sometimes groups can give us that place of acceptance and then we become stuck because somewhere in the thinking you go, oh, but if I get better, I won't belong to this group anymore. Then where do yes. I belong? Where am I going to go from here? So you need a person at the helm of that group to mm -hmm. make sure that that's the motivation and the encouragement to actually support each other and then move, you can still move together as a group and maintain those friendships, but as healthy, well-thriving people, you know, that don't have this codependency of staying stuck, you know, in an accepted, in a world Thank like that. So mm -hmm. that's why I felt it was really, really important. Um, yeah, the only time I sort of support going into a hospital environment is when obviously you're of a low weight and you are a danger to yourself in that, you know, you could pass away and you have to go in, you have to be drip fed, you have to be force fed and all of those to keep your body going. Having said that, I've seen too many that go in there and do that and they stay in there for long periods of time and I think, why are you still here? The right questions are not being asked of you clearly otherwise you wouldn't be back here again you wouldn't and just recently because what I've done this year is I wrote all my programs that are you know available through my website and they are very different and I notice that people will engage with them and then they sort of back off from them and I think this is a very my programs a very different approach because it's what we've been talking about here that is embedded as well as my story is embedded in it and it does ask the people to actually do the work and I think it's a very different approach that perhaps people are not expecting. So what I decided to do was, okay, I'm going to create a 10-week Zoom webinar 
for a group of, and I don't know what the right number would be, maybe five, maybe 10 mm. people. And that would be a group situation. And I've got, you know, it all set up. And this is the program I'm doing with a client in New York at the moment, and she's just loving it. Um, also giving people a place to belong, you mm. know, on a webinar, but you're sitting on your own. But with me at the helm, it's okay. No, I don't want you staying stuck here. I want you all to be able to meet one day at a healthy weight and doing healthy things and telling me what your career looks like and who your husband is and who your children are and all of those sorts of things that we deserve to have in life. And I'm sorry, I've forgotten the point that I was going to make about all of that. It's just flown out of my head. Maybe I wasn't, that wasn't the direction I was meant to go in. But I love what you said. I love it because you can't be too safe in a group. Like, I think like what what you said exactly, you know, when I joined an anxiety group and, and I felt at that point in in my healing process at that, that very moment, what I needed was to feel that I wasn't the only one. So the group worked hmm. when I started to move through that and not feel as lonely and not feel as depressed and all the things and learning about it's, you know, you know, the things that I'm thinking about are not as important as I'm really making them out to be and I'm blowing them up and all these things. Then it's time to kind of break off from the group, which can be sometimes difficult if you rely on it too much and then go from there. But I think it's absolutely like what you said is absolutely spot on from even other disorders, because I think um, if you don't do that and you don't live in the, you know, in your normal life, you'll never be able to, you'll never be able to really get, get there. You know, you'll never really, you, you always have a step back, always have a step back. I think it's so, so important because you need to be put in those stressful situations, you know, and know what to do instead yeah. of going back. So I think that that's great the way that you approach it. Yeah. So that you can learn tools and skills that, okay, this is a trigger for me. And this is what I'm doing. I'm starting to take my thinking down that negative road. Okay. Let's cut it right here, right now. Mm. Instead of that negative thought, let's think of a positive one. Okay. Let's whack that one in right here, right now. And even if you're panicking, instead of saying, oh, go, I'm liked and loved for who I am. You know, put that new thought in and just keep thinking it until you've calmed yourself down. So what you're doing is retraining the brain. At the moment, your brain is has got a certain, um, you know, a lot of um, ideas about how life works. Mm. And it's not how life works. So we have to get in there and get those thoughts out and put the new ones in that support you. But coming back to that group thing, yeah, go to the group. It will have a purpose for you. But also be very aware that one day you want to be able to move on to the next group that is right for you. And I don't mean perhaps another group where you all meet on a Wednesday night and there's 20 of you. It might be two or three friends mm. and then the next situation. So you're almost outgrowing, you know, that served its purpose and got you through to there. You've outgrown that. Be aware that one day you're going to outgrow that and get to the next. And that's a triumph for you. Yes, you're getting back to the world. and you're not letting these other people down they're on their journey you don't actually have to take them with you because you've probably you don't know what you've given them you know to yes, thank you you don't have to take that just puts so much pressure you're you cannot heal everyone in the group you need to take care of yourself it's okay to just think of you you know yeah. during that time you we don't you know we don't need to 
help everyone and be there for everyone when we're trying to deal with our own things. And it's okay. It doesn't mean we don't care about other people's struggles. It doesn't mean that we're not empathetic, but we do have to take care of ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And have that next vision, if you like, set up, ready to go. And then trust in that inner voice or whatever you want to call it. And listen to it when it says you're ready to move on. Mm. You're ready for the next step. And, you know, go to the next one and go to the next one because that's your ultimate goal. And um, in doing so, as I said before, you don't know. Someone in that group might say, hey, but we don't want you to. Oh, but by you going, and then they might see you one day and say, hey, you're going. And that might be the motivation they need to do that next step. And you might be pulling them with you unknowingly. You know, so don't ever underestimate the power that you leave behind by leaving a group as well. So, um, yes. yeah, I think we could talk about this for a long time. I know, so. I know. Just going back to the courses that you offer on your website. So um, you're taking a new approach, you said, with the Zoom room, just to see, right? And is this, yeah. mm -hmm. so do you find just different stages require different training too, right? Different stages of recovery, um, maybe, you know, need a different approach, like you were saying, so someone can join the Zoom calls, and then when they're ready to break free, you'll, you'll help them move on into the next stage, you know, and that might look like something different for them, and be more one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I came up with this idea, I did a business course back in January, um, just to learn more about business, and how to handle myself, and all of those sorts of things, and it came as a result of that seven-week course, and I thought, oh, how about if I set up uh, a webinar thing, a 10-week Zoom thing, where a group of us meet every whenever for an hour, hour and a half. And so I set it all up. It's all there. And um, uh, I've got all the notes, you know, you know and we're going to do this in week one and this in week two and this in week three. And But the main idea behind that was to get people to really understand what is really happening for them. You know, it's not a program that talks about, that focuses on diet culture. It's not going to focus on um, counting calories. It's not going to focus on weighing ourselves. Obviously, those things will creep into the conversation. Mm. But the focus of it is the same as the other programs. It's assisting a person to look at their story and look at their why and not only identify it, but know what to do with it to turn it around into a positive so that they can come through. And the idea of a group thing is that, so it does provide opportunity for people to, to engage in those conversations and not feel alone, but also perhaps hear something and go, oh, you tried that. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Or, oh, you know, Absolutely. so you can have those meaningful conversations, but I would want to see growth in each of those clients, you know, in that 10 weeks. I'd want to assess and make sure that they're not hanging on and they're not using it as an excuse to stay there, right. you know, so... No, there is homework, homework because of the ex-teacher in me. Got to do the work though. Each week they have um, things that they need to do and then come back and share, you know, how that went for them and all of that sort of stuff. And I set that up and, but it hasn't come to fruition. It's really frustrating. So this wonderful girl in New York who follows me on Instagram, I thought, you know what, I'm going to offer this program to her at a minimal cost, because I think if you pay for it, you take it more seriously than if you yeah, don't absolutely. pay for it. And um, oh, she was so excited. She got my book and read it and she's, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm gonna meet you. I'm just an ordinary person, people. And um, 
so yeah, I engaged with her. I set up a Zoom and we said hi. And she's sitting out of her apartment in her car, talking to me. And um, yeah, every Saturday morning, Friday night for her, she's a mother of two children and has a hubby and everything. So that's the time that sort of works for her. And I go through this webinar with her. I do the slides with her. And then because it's one-on-one, we can open it up and make it more individualised, you know, just for her as well. So um, really enjoying the process with her. And she, you know, might write an email. I've got an email I've got to answer back today about something she wants to know. So, and she knows she's free to do that. She can email me, JL, this is Or we go onto Instagram. That's messages great. Yeah. Yes. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> She knows she's got support, you know, all those miles away, but she doesn't have to wait a week if she's panicking. She can um, speak to me, you know, during the week as well. So it seems to be working for her. And um, and then at the end of this process, which is going to be longer than 10 weeks, I just know we're going to be here for a long time. And that's absolutely fine. Um, you know, the part of the deal was that she would then give me feedback, you know, what worked in your program? What didn't I enjoy? What did I, what can I think you can leave out? I would like this expanded on and um, so that I can tweak it, you know, as I go along. So, yeah, that's sort of where I'm up to at the moment. And as you're talking about, and as you're talking about this lady, I can see the joy in your, in your face and I can hear it in your voice because you know, you're helping her and that's what it comes down to. And I'm so happy that you're able to do that through your experience and turn it into, you know, something beautiful. What is the title, the title of your book? Maybe let us know that and where we can find you. And um, yeah, if we want to connect with you, I think it would really help if anybody out there, you know, needs someone to talk to someone who understands someone who knows and we'll ask the questions that most people don't take the time to ask. Exactly. Um, my website, JL Keys, and Keys, I'm sure you'll have it in the notes anyway, but K-E-E-Z, some people get that wrong, jlkeys.com.au, everything's there on my website, outlined it. The webinar's not um, on there because my website designer... Went and had a baby. <laughs> How rude! And so, extra things I want to have added on there in my media kit. I've got a few articles and things. We'll just wait until that little girl's a bit older, and I'll get back to Sally on that one. But um, my book is advertised there as well, and um, yeah, and all the courses. But do expect people if you choose to do to select the free program, don't be put off by you know all the wordage and all the text and everything. Be bothered to read it and be bothered to learn about who you are. Mm. And because that's what I try to do in, um, in creating these things. Please take the time to look at your story. There's a method. The way that I- yeah. yeah. We don't end up like this overnight. So we can't fix it overnight. You have to put in the work. You have to know that you are important enough and to love yourself enough to make the time. Nothing is more important when you're in that situation, then taking this time and walking through it with somebody, you know, this is going to help for the rest of your life. Right. And the other thing I want to add while you're saying that, because I always start at any of the written programs that I've done on the webinar as well is uh, support mm-hmm. as well as having me in a webinar or, you know, an, another therapist um, make sure that you set up a good support system around you. And by that, I mean, It only needs to be one or two people, but take those people on your journey with you 
educate them as well and be picky in who you select. Make sure that they are people who want to grow and understand you, who take the time to listen to you. And even though they might not understand or inwardly, they might even be going, oh, for, oh seriously, really? you know. But oh. they don't show that. They are willing to support you to become you. Probably the worst person to choose as a, as a support is one of those people in a relationship that's contentious already and already controlling. And that might sadly be mum or dad. They might be the worst person because they might say, I want you to heal, but I want you to heal in this way. <laughs> you know, there might be an underlying, you know, but I still want you to do things like this. I don't actually want you to be you, you know, so be really picky with that support system as well. Um, really, really important to have people to turn to, to yell and scream at if that's what you're feeling like doing and they're prepared to listen and, and support you in that way. So I just think it was important to point that out. Yeah. No, absolutely. For sure. Because sometimes if you pick people that are too close in your circle, who grew up the way that you did, who have the same beliefs as you do, all of those things, you're not going to move forward. You might even go backwards. So I think that that's really important that you mentioned that. Thank you. You're so brilliant. Yeah. Uh, just sharing my knowledge and my wisdom, I suppose, over many years and knowledge and wisdom that I wish was given to me at the age of 15 and my you know, I wouldn't have been wandering around there for so long, um, you know, just suffering. Now you can be that for somebody else. You can't <laughs> go back, right? So now, now you can be that light and ask all the questions that people didn't think to ask. So, you know, and that's why we talk about these things. And I'm so happy that we talked about this topic today because, you know, like I said, I don't know a lot of, around this topic because I haven't had the experience. Um, you know, but if there is anybody who's listening to the show, reach out. If you're having if you're having these issues, reach out to somebody. You cannot do this on your own. Just like if you're if you're having you know a problem with alcohol or drugs or anything, um, you know, reach out. And like we said at the beginning, you know, if you know someone and you see the signs, we talked today in this episode about seeing some of the signs and what to recognize. You know, even if you're not sure, reach out to that person, make them feel like they're not alone. You know, even mm -hmm. if they don't want to speak to you, you know, let them share this podcast episode, you know, perhaps it will, something will, you know, just, it'll click with them and then they'll decide, you know, I, I do deserve better. You know, let mm -hmm. me start, let me start with this. So thank you so much. Was there anything that you wanted to mention um, that we didn't talk about? Things. Um, that come to mind as you were speaking uh, that last bit then if you do notice something in somebody like Inga did with me all those years ago her approach really worked for me she must have I think talked to the doctor and they must have colluded together to work out their approach which was nurturing for me it wasn't confronting okay. so it's really important that if you're noticing something in somebody and you really want to um, support them and get them help or whatever please don't go up and say look I can see what you're doing you're not eating properly I want you to you know it's got to be in a nurturing and caring way otherwise that will be the end of that relationship for a start you know they won't want yes. to know you more but really um, perhaps seek advice from somebody how will I approach this situation how can I do this for this person and because the best way to go up to someone and say 
look, and we'll just use the word, the name Sally, just because Sally, sorry, it come into my mind, my website designer. She hasn't got an eating disorder, don't worry. Um, but, you know, Sally, I'd love to have a cup of tea with you. Look, I've really noticed some changes in you and I value you as a person and I really value our friendship. Is there anything you'd like to share with me or am I on the wrong track? Because I've noticed changes in this and changes in that and da, da. is there anything that you'd like to share with me? No, no. Okay, well, you know I'm here when you're ready. Don't fall and just back off. So, okay, so let's have that cup of tea. What are you doing for the rest of the day? You know, completely go off in a different tangent. Come from a place of love. You've sown that seed. Hmm. And then leave it for a month or so and say, look, remember when we talked about that? Are you sure? Because I'd love to support you if there's anything there. And it would be confidential. I would support you on that and blah, blah, blah. So it's very caring and very non-confronting. And then you're creating trust in that way and that person even though you might still be friends there's that next level is a level of trust that's different mm. so go into that space quietly and do it that way rather than confronting you know that person Thank and you. only one person not two or three people otherwise they'll feel yes <laughs> and even if you, in the end even if you decide not to open up to that person I bet you that you're still going away thinking about the conversation even if it was just them asking you know maybe it'll open up I don't want to open up to this person but I am thinking about it more and maybe I do need to speak to somebody and I'll find somebody else it'll at least start the process I think process and you know if you do like I'm thinking of me here I have a business card so and I did do this with someone and that girl's actually struggling with finishing year 12 so she's sort of that's her focus at the moment but I did give my business card and my pamphlet to this intervening person it's a teacher mm. and that was handed on to this person okay. look I've, I've just come across this person and she looks really great I'm just going to give it to you for consideration walk away mm. and then you know they've got that information so as long there's no pressure there's it's just a suggestion that might not work for another six months, but hey, the seed's been sown. So it's really, really important to do that very gently and mm. carefully, you know, at yeah, their time. Yeah. So we have to and make other sure feel safe. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, we've all got to find yeah, our own safe space, right? That's right. It's always got to be around trust and safety. Um, because so often with eating disorders, the background is not feeling safe. And that was one of mine with being sexually abused is not feeling safe. So yeah, lots of, lots of um, areas that come into it. Um, if a listener from today would like to connect with me as well, my business email, hello at jlkeys.com.au. If you've got any inquiries or questions or want to know more about the webinar, um, feel free to you know, to connect with me in that way as well. I'd love to hear from you. So that's it. Oh, the other two things I wanted to say. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I'm glad that we gave this, um, this episode the time it deserved, because I think, I, and I'm hoping that people will reach out. And um, even if it's not with you or with me, that they'll at least realize that they can't do it on their own. That is the very first step. So thank you so much for coming and speaking about this very important topic. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, 
yeah, sitting here in this little bedroom looking out at a rainy day. But anyway, <laughs> if people could see how we set ourselves up to do recording, they'd laugh, wouldn't they? <laughs> but honestly, it's been so educational and I learned a lot. So um, if I did, I'm sure someone else did too. And, and there's always the two sides. We always try to approach the person who is suffering, but also the person who isn't and can observe other people because we all need that, you know, we all need that person in our corner and uh, maybe we could be that person for somebody else. You know, we don't have to be um, dealing with certain things to be compassionate, to, to reach out, to be a friend, to help end this feeling that I'm alone. So yeah, yeah. thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me back. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think we've put a lot into it. Thank you with your guidance and your questioning a lot of material that I think will be helpful. Yeah, that's blowing my bags a bit, isn't it? But <laughs> I, I hope it will be. I guess I've spoken the things that I wish I heard at 15. And that's what's important because you, you know, and you're going to be that person that you wish was there for you, for so many people. And there's nothing more beautiful than that, honestly. I'm so glad that you're in a great place and that, you know, you had that one person in your corner who who convoluted with the doctor, who, you know, did it all about love, who came from a place of giving rather than we're doing an intervention, you know. Yeah. Of course, you're going to, like all these TV shows portray all these, you know, all these things, right? Oh, anyway. It doesn't work. <laughs> no, no. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you today. And please keep in touch. I will. I will. Always. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe or leave a review. See you next week on the Giving Starts With You podcast.